Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast. I'm Dave Sharp, Marketing Consultant for Architects at VanityProjects.com. Today, I'm joined by Monique Woodward from WoWA, a medium-sized practice based in Melbourne whose work truly embodies the philosophy that life's too short for boring spaces. Monique and her partner, Scott, launched the practice in 2010 with a focus on colourful, playful family homes. And today, their 13-person studio also works across a number of exciting public and community projects too. In this episode, we discussed how Monique was able to carve out a distinctive brand in the residential market and how she was able to identify with her ideal clients and put her authentic self forward in her marketing and communications. We also looked at Monique's techniques for winning new types of work, whether it was through video or self-generated projects and ideas. And we spoke about the steps she took to uncover new opportunities for WoWA to contribute to the local community and get involved in public projects and collaborations. And finally, we looked at how you can develop a stronger personal brand in architecture, some tips for figuring out your point of difference, and the importance of finding mentors and teachers along the way. So, I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Monique Woodward from WoWA. Monique Woodward, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. So great to have you on. I feel like it's very overdue. Should have been on ages ago. (laughs) You've done so much marketing stuff since since I first started this show. We've got a lot to cover on this episode. We just did our like run through and it took about 15 minutes in terms of all the things that we've got to talk about that you've been doing. Is that um, not normal? (laughs) That's so not normal. We've usually got a couple little things we touch on, but no, this is going to be great. So I guess we start off as we kind of always do with just Maybe a little bit about WoWA and the practice for for anybody that's not familiar um, with your business or, or, or your work before. Cool. Well, we are WoWA. We have been around for 10 years. We're a medium-sized practice of about 11, uh, 13 people now. Um, we had a we worked from home, which is funny because our ten year um, anniversary happened and we were in lockdown. So it was like we started from home. We're now working from home again. <laughs> have, what happened in between? But uh, yeah, so we started working from home for about four years, and then we had a Rathdown Street um, shop front, and we worked from there, and it was just the most delightful time. And then we moved to a Clay Cousins building in Collingwood. So that's where we're at at the minute. We've got a whole level, it's glass brick and it's just, you know, it has an indoor toilet, which our other one didn't. <laughs> so we're just loving life basically. That's so cool. I didn't know that you worked from home at the beginning. Was that, so that was you, was that you, Scott, and like a couple of employees or was it just you and Scott? What was the, what was the okay, configuration? Okay, it was Scott and I on, yeah. we had a meter desk each. And yeah. we worked in our Grattan Street uh, apartment, basically. So, yeah. and then we'd have some students over, um, but mostly the students would work from home. So, um, yeah, it was very kind of um, we kept it very tight and right in those yeah. early years. And yeah. I remember Peter Malat uh, from one of the directors of Six Degrees. Remember him saying, "You know, you just need to get a studio. Just you get a studio, and everything will fall into place." And um, we didn't listen to him, obviously, and I really wish that after about, you know, we listened, we, we got a studio like two years earlier than we did. So, yeah. he was totally right. Um, his other piece of advice was to hire a student and then it makes you more accountable. And, of course, we didn't do that until uh, we very much had to and I really wished we had. So, I think, yeah, um, yeah he's a wise man. 
I think that was really cool how you had the shop front for for such a long time. I remember that's how I first met you. I came to Melbourne and I was going around like filming some architect studios. So I got to visit a whole bunch of really cool studio spaces and went to yours and it was this just super adorable little shop front in a suburb and, and everybody was like squeezed in around a big circular table or whatever and it was very intimate and tight quarters. It was really cool. But I remember thinking at the time like, oh, a shop front, like you were the only shop front studio of all the architects I looked at did that was being that public or like that visible to the public with like signage and stuff in the window and yeah, in big the, gold like, letters big gold <laughs> letters like nobody could possibly miss that you guys were there um yeah. that was such a cool way to like start the the practice I mean do you have pretty good nostalgic memories of being in the shop front you've come a long way from the shop front now but yeah it was amazing I think that it was really it really spoke to our idea of bringing architecture into the public realm. And it was very deliberate. It was, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Like, I think, um, at the time I was really obsessed with these kind of like business catchphrases. I just, you know, really dove uh, or dived, uh, headfirst into entrepreneurship and was really unpacking a lot of those things and just thought we needed to, we wanted to um, be a serious player and we needed to show up. And it sort of felt like a really public um, facing thing was what we needed. And, you know, um, I remember Scott was painting one of the tables, um, our office tables, and a client walked in like the very first week and goes, oh, hey, where did your um, where you get those tables from. And Scott's like, um, I'm painting them right now. And, uh, yeah, but that was the client of Mary Creek house. So, our, and it was almost like proof that the shop front was just, you know, it did what it needed to do. It got us clients. And we, you know, we often had clients walk in the door and say, Hey, I'll have a six pack of architecture. Thanks. And, um, you know, and uh, we had a cat. He became really famous in the street, and everyone, you know, he had he had an Instagram account <laughs> that um, then became my personal account. So I don't know. I'm just I'm really just yeah, just a crazy cat <laughs> fan. Yeah. yeah. How do you sort of think about building an approachable, friendly, fun brand like as an architecture business? I think I thought more about it as how do I create a business around who I authentically am, right? Like how I think that was a, a lot of the authentic entrepreneurial um, teachings that really required you to sort of say, okay, well, who is your ideal client avatar, say? And I guess we thought a lot about it and said, well, it's us. Like it's it's people who have kids. Um, you know, Scott has a daughter, you know, we wanted to do really yummy renovations, delightful renovations for people uh, with families, you know, young professionals. And so we really were careful about articulating who that um, who that exact person was. And, you know, our ideal client is female. She's a mom. Like she has found us on Instagram. She's found us on Pinterest or um, she's seen a magazine. And I think it really was about, okay, how do you amplify um, that voice and how do you be authentic? And I think that's um, why I have no real problem with scaling up because um, I'm always going to be there. So yeah. it's my voice. And I think just translating that and, um, you know, people are either going to buy in or not basically. So, and at this point, uh, you know, if they, if they don't like 
me or my style, then they're not going to like our work. So I think, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a red flag or a green flag at this point. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that makes sense. I think like when, when architects, a lot of residential architects like approach me looking for help with their marketing and, and they write, they fill out my survey and they write down like our type of client we're looking for. And it's always the same. It's like 30 to 60 year old person in like inner suburbs, loves design and architecture. And like, it's the same all the time, but like you've really kind of, you've maybe gone a bit deeper than that. Maybe it feels like in terms of your client persona um, and, and just thinking about yourself, I guess, but like that's that's obviously a typical architect's client. Everyone's looking for that. But yeah, what it's me, think, but richer. It's you, but richer. It's like a more successful, richer version of yourself, right? Is yeah, that the idea? Exactly. Right. Perfect. So how do you how do you do that when like I mean that must have been where do you start with that? I mean you started off that way, so I'm, I guess it's a question of oh, it just felt natural to you to do it that way. But was there something in particular that made you feel it's important to like? be myself in this company or give this company a personality and give it a sense of style or give it, you know, you know what I'm sort of saying? I mean, I worked at uh, a lot of firms as a student. I worked at, you know, John Wardle, Marketing Genius, Cassandra Complex, um, you know, ARM as a grad. And all of those companies were super clear on who it was that they were and the, the image that they wanted to project in the world. And so I think that really, um, it was the influence of those architects that really, um, you know, that really allowed me to see that actually by being your most authentic self, um, you were able to um, succeed and that actually there's no point in shaming myself for being really colloquial or, you know, yeah. that I'm not academic enough or I'm not this or I'm not that. Um, you know, there's no there's no good that comes out of that. I just wanted to be who I was and, um and allow that to be enough. And so, because I can't change it and, yeah. you know, there's, there's no need to have that rub there. And, um, so I think it was a mixture of that. Um, but also, you know, and I've, I really haven't spoken about this in this particular way. So maybe it might not come across very well, but I think at the time when we started our practice, we realized that there was a, a lot of traction with putting me at the front, you know, Scott, mm-hmm is the, you know, my husband, he's 15 years older. He's a, he was a registered architect when I wasn't, when we first started. Um, and we kind of, it did feel as though there was an opportunity for me to be put in the front and um, that we would be sort of um, uh, seen as this sort of emerging female practice. And so mm. that we were invited on a lot of boards and a lot of lectures where there was, mm. you know, two old men and then they could sort of pop me in as the, <laughs> you know, as the female. And, um, and even though, you know, there's a lot of problems with that, we found that that worked really well. So, yeah. um, you know, as a marketing strategy, I, we sort of went, uh, you know, Scott's really obsessed with, um, Remington steel, um, where, you know, she's this detective, but she needs this like man, you know, at the front yeah. of the business. And yeah. anyway, so it's like this reverse Remington steel and Scott actually wanted to call Wawa Remington steel. So are you serious? Uh, That's crazy. That's yeah. exactly, I, I did an episode like a few ago with Kate Fitzgerald from Whisperings Fifth and she sort of thought of her role in a very similar way. It's almost exactly the same. And, um, it's, definitely something that plays a big part and, and she used the term like a charismatic front man character like and that you're kind of you took on that front man role front person role and Scott was kind of back of house sort of behind the scenes um maybe a little bit more um 
that's definitely something that plays a big part that early on you sort of took on this more kind of independent role as a representative or like almost a brand ambassador for (laughs) that you're out there doing panels and talks and things like that um that's 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 a really when was it that you first sort of how did you first sort of discover like discover that that was a possibility i'm thinking back to the very early days when initially you're sort of on the on the tools more like designing getting you know rolling up your sleeves doing all that sort of stuff what was that transition like where it started you started taking on more of this front person role and i guess a little bit of your like a window into your experiences during that time I think it's looking at my mentors. So, you know, I really loved Mel Bright from Studio Bright, you know, Claire Cousins, Amy Muir, you know, all of these really powerful women that I just wanted to be like. I think, you know, I just looked at them and sort of thought, well, um, they're amazing. I made friends with them all. (laughs) You know, I um, just wanted to hang out with them. And then I just did as they did. So there was this really awesome, um, exercise that I did with my business coach at the time. And he was saying, you know, if you could be the mixture of three people, who would it be? Um, and then, you know, I was just lucky enough to kind of say, okay, those three ladies, I'll be those three. (laughs) And then, um, you know, I mean, in, in kind of business talk, maybe it'd be like Warren Buffett or I don't know, like you'd, you'd sort of pick these like people that you'd never meet in a million years kind of thing. But I just went, well, I'm just going to become friends with these incredible ladies and, um, you know, and, and I love them so much. And really it, it was very organic. Um, so uh, and, and I kind of loved doing that stuff. Like I was teaching at the yeah. time and, um, you know, I always loved debating and yeah. I don't know, like, I think, you know, these things do come really naturally. And I always have this like little, this other little test. It's like, if you ever feel jealous of someone, um, you know, if you have this kind of, you see someone doing something and you just have this like nagging for like, Ugh, yeah. you know, <laughs> I think, yeah. um, it's really useful because it's your intuition telling you that that's what you want to do. Right. Like yeah. I've never been jealous of someone who has written a novel <laughs> say, yeah. right. Because it's like, that's not what I want to yeah. do. So, yeah. but if I ever caught myself thinking, Oh God, that person's so awesome with their novel, then maybe I'd, you know, check myself and be like, Oh, well, maybe it is time to write a novel and then go befriend that person and be like, Hey, I love you now. Like I will celebrate you for the rest of your days. Um, teach me sensei, like how to make a model. (laughs) I mean, how to make a model, how to write a novel. Um, and, and so I think I've just always approached, um, these things with just trying to find teachers and mentors and just provide value back and, um, share what I know. And the more that I share with other people, the more that they teach me. And so I really felt that it was this two way street, Um, relationship always I think part of the really good choice you made was picking mentors or people that you wanted to learn from that were actually available to you as real living breathing people that you could meet and get to know and collaborate with and that sort of thing because I think sometimes people they make their hero like some globally famous architect who in Portugal that they, they may get to meet if they win like a Dulux prize or something, but largely speaking, they're not going to interact with that person. So it's very like from a distance, but you got to sort of, you picked people that you really just wanted to be around and be influenced by and, and, and do stuff with. So I think that was a really, you know, a really smart decision. Um, going back to, I guess, 
your clients and life's too short for boring spaces, the kind of the famous famous tagline <laughs> of World War, like an absolute sort of stroke of genius at that time. Um, to this day, I think I still saw, I still see this sort of like hatred of boring still on your even your new website, like three versions of your website later. It still seems to be like boringness is the enemy. And <laughs> every time anybody like... I'm working with looks at your tagline or looks at your site. They go, oh shit, why didn't I think of that? That's so good, right? So you've held onto this like this theme forever. Um, how, tell me a little bit about that as like, I guess where did that kind of come from and how you look at that sort of as a consistent thread that's kind of taken you all these like 10 years? Life's Too Short for Boring Spaces came from Life's Too Short for Boring Parties. I saw that one time somewhere and I just thought, hey, <laughs> that's so good. You know, and I think that's that it great. speaks to that um, desire to look around at other industries and see what I can steal from yeah. them um, that can be applied to architecture. I think that's sort of a, a really constant theme. So looking at um, you know, looking at our rock star accounts, looking at, you know, looking at friends who are lawyers, looking at, um, you know, I have a lot of marketing friends as well. So yeah. I think that's just intuitive. But um, the website, I've always seen it as something very deliberate. Um, you know, we did the first version. Um, it was, and that website was actually um, based on a, like a, a business coach in America, like her website. Uh -huh, um, okay. It was based on Marie Folio. She's now done a new, you know, a yeah. bunch of other iterations of her website, but at the time it was based on that. And so, um, and it had, you know, a section for videos and, um, I'm like, Oh, I have to make some videos for this whole website to work on. Cause you know, I need content for this like extremely content heavy website. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it was just that thing of, you know, that your website shouldn't be a boring, um, you know, folio, or it shouldn't just be a boring, um, business extension of a business card. It should be really interactive and engaging and pumping and, you know, yeah. informative. And, you know, that thing that I always talk about, like it should entertain, inspire and, um, educate. And so yeah. I feel like the website had to do that. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, so we did the first, first incarnation and then, yeah, at some point in time we decided very deliberately that we wanted to move from doing only uh, resi work to doing, you know, public work as well. And so um, as a kind of marketing stunt, we split the website in half and it was surprisingly easy to do. And, uh, you know, we got our graphic designers to basically just cut the website in half. And so one side said civic and then one side said public. And basically that was an advertisement to the world to yeah. say that we were now doing and, and capable of doing these two things. Yeah. Um We'll get to that in a bit because I definitely want to talk more about the public and the residential and how that you sort of the trade-offs between those two and, and that sort of journey that you went on. But you mentioned video for a second there and yes, your website was has always been different in terms of you're one of the few architects that actually has like a proper homepage in my opinion that has more than just like a single photo of a project um, but there's all these like different sections like stuff to read, stuff to listen to, stuff to watch and it's very like multimedia interviews like tweets testimonials it's very um heavily it's full of messaging and content there's a lot that you can always go through there but those videos that you came up with a series that you did a long time ago if you were mine um do you want me to go through the premise or do you, do you want to you make can, me you do can. it you have to okay so i'll do it really quickly <laughs> so Monique basically stood outside these kind of like classic uh i guess we could say like archetypical melbourne houses and spoke directly to the camera for like a minute or two and said, 
if this was my house, this is what I would do to it. So it was a little bit of a history lesson in terms of that style of home. And, um, you know, then you just got to kind of do a bit of creative sort of imagination of what would be there. And they, they were really great, like little short videos. So you did a series of about, you know, I think it was six of those, right? And so they there was lived five. on your, there five. Was fi- well, there was actually six, but I looked really chubby in one of them. So <laughs> that got cut out. Spanish so mission got cut out. Okay. Yeah. So that's unfortunate for that one, but that's fine. <laughs> and so they were on your homepage um, pretty prominently. Like it was basically that thumbnail of you standing inside and standing in front of a house was like front and center on the website for quite a long time. Um, yeah. yeah. But that's that series of videos and I'm interested in getting into this idea of it started a little bit of a run of you going, here's my idea for something, kind of in the way you just spoke about the split in the website. We're just like putting it out there, like planting a flag and going, we are going to do public stuff. Half our website is now public. Similarly, with that renov- with that series that was focused more on the renovation component of the practice, you're just going, here is what I would do if this is my project, right? And so there's a few things like that. What as a tactic or as a strategy, I've always felt that that was something that you've been like uniquely good at. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, I guess, using that? What, what do we call that? Just getting out there in front of it. And just it's, called, going. it's called being generous with your ideas. Like I think, yeah. um, you know, I remember at the time that seemed kind of radical. You know, everyone, um, it was sort of just on the cusp of Instagram when people were starting to share their, you know, their their lives um, in a visual way. But I, at the time I kind of just felt like everyone was sort of hoarding their ideas and they didn't want to, um, you know, they didn't want to give too much away and whatever anyway. And so I just wanted to come from this completely different angle and say, this is all my ideas. Like there's always more where that comes from. I've got heaps of them. <laughs> like they're yeah. never going to run out. And, yeah. you know, I just want to be generous and almost um, show people what, um, I would do if it was a cream brick house or I would do if it was a Kelly bungalow. And, um, you know, my hope was that someone would see, you know, someone who owned a Kelly bungalow would be like, Hey, I saw that video that you did. Um, I really want, you know, X, Y, Z. And so, um, that was sort of the idea that, um, you know, or someone would see the video who knew that their friend had a, you know, an orange triple fronted brick veneer house and yeah. they would send it to their friend and then we would get the call. So, and that's how our tiger prawn project actually came to, came to be because, um, the clients actually saw the, you know, double story Victorian, um, oh no, our project was double story Victorian, but the video was a single story, um, you know, Hawthorne brick, uh, Victorian. And I labeled it as a tiger prawn because the yeah. window, you know, the window fenestrations kind of looked a bit like, like a tiger prawn. And so the clients <laughs> came to us and they're like, Hey, we've got a double story tiger prawn. And I was like, Oh my God, all of those, uh, you know, all of that effort actually came off. And so, yeah, I feel like there's just these little moments throughout our journey where we've gone, that is the proof that it was worth it. You know, <laughs> you could tie it back to that project. Yeah. So that's, yeah. That's so that's so cool. Um, but I wasn't expecting you to give the answer of that kind of generosity with ideas. I think that's just a really interesting theme. And yeah, I guess, I guess a lot of architects do kind of keep that stuff kind of locked up or secret, but do you think it's because they're going, oh, I've, I'm very precious with my ideas or do you think it's more of a sort of vulnerability of who wants, who would even want to look at my stuff? I feel like there's as much a trend of that out there as there is. It's more under, it's under confidence, right? Not, 
overconfidence. I'm so cool. I'm not giving away any of this genius. I think it's in most cases they're like, I just didn't. Th- I just don't think anyone would be interested. Like that's kind of more of what I hear, you know, from from architects. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I think uh, again, I think you've just got to you've just got to back yourself emotionally, and you know, if if you can't you know, if you can't love yourself and if you can't, um, take yourself seriously and trust yourself, then how do you expect anyone else to, um, you know, and I think that that speaks to our, um, you know, because I, I mentioned that we had a business coach. I remember at the time, um, architects would normally charge at the end of every stage. And he just looked at that and he's like, that is so crazy. You're essentially bankrolling your client's work. No, like charge monthly, charge upfront, um, you know, and, and if they don't pay, then stop doing the work. And I think, um, you know, it took quite a few years for me to like evangelist style, like disseminate that. And, but it is, um, basically industry standard now. And, um, you know, if, if you do that, then I think you can, I guarantee you can directly thank my business coach from, (laughs) from all the way back because yeah, I remember getting so much resistance at the time that people like, well, you know, well, what if I don't do the work? I'm like, what are you even talking about? (laughs) Of course you were going to do the work. Like, why would you hold yourself hostage like that? So I think, um, you know, maybe as an industry, we just need to be more confident. Yeah. So that confidence, but I, I guess like, um, it's, it's also confidence to try something that is kind of new. I mean, if you came out with the If You Mind video series right now, that would like, if you came out with that this week, that would still be kind of new <laughs> and kind of still, that's like, we wouldn't be like, oh, another architect doing a series of videos, exploring and educating the public about amazing local architecture. That, that basically does not exist. <laughs> there's still there's still a real big shortage of that. And right. you've been trying to get me to do more. I I made I those in 2014. So you've been trying to get me to do more I know. for so you, long. You can see I still haven't let them go. I'm still fascinated <laughs> by them. And I still use them as an example because um, I think like it's challenging for architects to think about how they can explore video. I mean, as broad as that sounds, like video is seen as very, very challenging, like the most challenging thing you could possibly make, right? Yeah, well, architects and, didn't go to architecture school to be in front of a camera. Oh, you know, some did maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. But at the most part, we're introverts that actually really love to be sketching in our studios. Like that's, and, I, you know, it's that's been one of the most interesting things that I've realised with this pandemic is that I think I'm actually an introvert. I think I've just been like... <laughs> projecting my extrovertness because I had to, because I realized that there was, um, you know, there was, uh, you know, uh, there was a need for it. There was, uh, ability to cut through. There was, um, the capacity to make a change and have the impact and, uh, do all the things that I wanted to do. And that required me to, you know, reject my, uh, reject my desire to just be doing these, you know, fun little, you know, beautiful projects and little designs in in sort of solitude and actually embrace the world in a way that um, was really, I mean, yeah, really unexpected. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's it's scary doing stuff like that, but that that's interesting realizing now in hindsight that you're like maybe I, maybe you are more introverted than all that <laughs> stuff, but you were, it was your job, right? So you just had to do yeah. it. Yeah, um, I mean, I saw it as my responsibility at that point. I mean, I remember watching, you know, my, one of my favorite uh, teachers, um, you know, YouTube guru, business yeah. gurus, and they're like, you have a responsibility to get your message out into the world. Um, and that 
you know, if someone you're doing a disservice to people that don't actually see you or find you because you haven't promoted yourself properly. And so I'm like, oh, I don't want to do a disservice in the world. Like, <laughs> you know, it's the last thing that we want to do. So yeah. I think it was, and it was, it also came off the heels of um, being published. Like I remember mm. um, we were published and I was just expecting the phone to just start ringing off the hook. And I'm like, hey, why are we not getting all these clients? And then I think it was, you know, that pivot from kind of going, oh, getting published doesn't mean anything. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, you know, or, you know, for clients, you know, oh, winning awards is actually just marketing collateral. Like they don't really mean anything. Oh, great. Yeah. Like that were my two strategies. Yeah. I think it'd be good to chat about, because I think there's like you stepping out, doing those things, staking your claim, kind of faking it till you make it a little bit with certain things going, that's what I want to do. I think there's a, it makes sense to then talk about some of the um, either pro bono or sort of self-generated or self-initiated projects that the practice took on and like pretty interesting stuff, like whether it's Yarra pools or the seaside pools or a couple of different things, you guys did you put out videos, you created this like gorilla, like <laughs> groundswell of community yeah. involvement, like oh, this really interesting approach. Um, without going too much into the projects themselves, like would you mind just talking a little bit about, I guess, some of the some of the steps you went through to 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 take on these projects or to bring these to life, these ideas to life and communicate them, I think is the most important part, right? Yeah, so I think one of the... Uh, one of the ways that architects generally get, you know, public work, right, is that they would win a competition. You know, I worked at Lab as a student um, who obviously won Fed Ocean Square, um, yeah. but then my time was obviously post Fed Square. Um, so it's called Fed Square. So weird, Fed <laughs> Square. Um, we'll leave it in. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but my time there, working there as two years as a student, was basically working on like unsuccessful competitions uh <laughs> like one after the other yeah i think we, we won one when i was there or something oh, um, cool. <laughs> anyway and so i kind of swore that after working there we would never do a competition like if i if i started my own practice we would not do competitions and so um but then how do you win how do you win work how do you win public work was the question right so then i thought well um, you know, I remember hearing someone say that they generally lose between 20K and 50K on a competition entry just in time and, you know, yeah. resources and things. And so I thought, well, why not, instead of just losing it, like on competition <laughs> after competition after competition, why don't we, um, you know, approach community groups and then and do, you know, and then um, use that resource on either a community group that really wants to, you know, do something but they don't have the resources just yet or, you um, you know, or uh, actually do a speculative project and yeah. um, just do that instead and try and materialize it or like manifest yeah. it into being. And so, um, you know, as I said before, we were teaching at the time. And so we would actually use, um, you know, RMIT design studios to kind of fund or, and Monash um, as well, yeah. sorry, um, to kind of fund, uh, you know, these projects. And so we'd make the speculative project of the studio, you know, the project that we wanted to do. And so yeah. um, that's how we kind of got the manpower to do these like master plans and, um, you know, these videos and things like that. Yeah, we ran a crowdfunding campaign where we got <laughs> the students to kind of make this video. I don't know, like it was us just like experimenting and having fun and working out what you could actually do and what these platforms were and, yeah. um, you know, cause yeah, no one was using those for architecture. And so it's like, you know, what would you, 
what would an architectural version of this, you know, crowdfunding, crowdfunding look like? Be? Yeah. Like, and what yeah. would it do and what could it do? And yeah, we had a, a mayor um, candidate who actually just had like our renders on the side of the, his, you know, <laughs> campaign bus. And I don't know, it just, it was, I don't know, just understanding the politics of space and, you know, our proprietary, um, you know, capacity to produce, um, you know, images, to produce these beautiful renders that actually most you know, most people are like are wowed by these yeah. glorious visions. Um, and so where does that fit? Where do architects play in that kind of political scene was something that we became really, really interested in. And um, say for the footy club that you mentioned before, it was about garnering um, bipartisan political support um, from both parties so that we, you know, actually secured the funding. So we did the renders and then we got, you know, political support and then we uh, actually got the project um, and then we took our fee obviously out of the, you know, the money that we got secured for the project. So um, it was sort of a, it's sort of a long game, but, you know, when there's no capacity to like win a competition or yeah. um, just be handed on a silver platter or some sort of project, I think it's, um, yeah, how do you, how do you manifest it? How do you, when you're doing something like that, how do you sort of t- test the water or explore like the feasibility of it without investing fully and launching straight into the design because I feel like that'd be tempting for a lot of architects would be like, Oh, I'm just going to start designing it and start rendering it. And it turns into this big six month project. But was there any steps that you did beforehand, like on the political side, on the community side, like where, where do those projects have to kind of start to be, to be, you know, it is, it is a huge, it is a long game. So say Yarra pools, um, I, we started working on that in 2016 and uh, we didn't design anything until 2018. Wow. Um, when, uh, yeah, Ewan McEwen, one of the um, curators for the NGV, he funded uh, a fly-through. And so we had held back all that time because we wanted to, uh, you know, I was curious to understand what co-creation actually was. It was sort of this buzzword at the time, but um, we were working with this amazing um, group of people. So I'm on the board. So there was a president and, you know, am- amongst the other board members, there was uh, a political strategist and a writer and an environmentalist and a, you know, a, there were all the people, um, you know, an engineer. And um, it was really fascinating to me to understand like how to engage with, you know, 50 different stakeholders and, um, you know, what that sort of, uh, yeah, that really sort of co-curated process was and where architecture sort of sat there and my my seat at the table as an architect and the influence that I was able to have and um you know and it's like literally just before um just before this interview we you know I was um in a massive meeting with the city of Melbourne to talk about the feasibility and so it's been so it's 2021 and it started in 2016 and it's only now kind of um it found its place within the green line hopefully and we've been advocating and um engaging with um you know, people for such a long time. And I think the payoff, um, you know, I don't even know whether there will be a payoff, but I think, you know, we're just passionate about it and you've got to um, just go where it leads. Yeah, that's so interesting. So you were, you actually started by, there was already like an, there was an organization there that was already starting to develop. Is that, did I understand that correctly? Or with those different stakeholders and those various people, and then you kind of did you front up and go, hey, I, I want to get involved in this? Or is that sort of the, the the thing? So you didn't you didn't come along 
from a blank slate and be like, hey, guys, Yarrapool, what do we all think? Let's get a room together. It wasn't like that way of doing no, it. No, okay. so Yarrapools had already been set up as an organisation in 2014 and yeah. so one of the, the, the president at the time, um, he got in contact with us because we were doing the seaside pool for Port Melbourne mm. and so I'd done a podcast and he'd heard me speak on that podcast and right. or, it's, or it was on 3AW or something like that and then yeah. so... Um, yeah, then he he was just like, "Hey, come on board," and that's yeah. how I got involved. And so that I mean, that very much speaks to my, um, you yeah. know, my faith of, uh, you know, one little step in front of the other will amount to big things. And so yeah. just by taking these small little actions, saying yes to everything, um, you know, which probably meant that I had poor boundaries at the time, <laughs> but um, you know, saying yes to all of these unexpected random things and just allowing it to go. Like, do you want to speak at council and talk about your pools? Um, you know, yeah. in the council chambers, like, uh, okay, like, yeah, sure, yeah. let's do this. You know, just every little moment to um, talk about architecture, talk about the value of design, um, you know, and that that was my, you know, calling, yeah. it feels like now. Totally. And the connection between those two pools projects is also just such a good example because it's like the first one started kind of from scratch a little bit more so and then it, it, it got profile because it was interesting and you guys were pushing it and there was a lot of support for it and that sort of thing, which ended up leading to kind of PR and interviews and people want to know about it. They want to ask you about it. They go, that's so, that's so interesting. Can we ask you questions about it? Then that helps to get the message out even more. Then other people hear, hear that and then they think about we could get Monique involved in our thing too. So then the invitations come from that as well. So it's that, yeah. so you're right, it's like that, those stepping stones that kind of come along, but you kind of got that ball rolling initially with something you didn't know where it was going to end up necessarily, right? But no, and I don't know where anything's going to end up. I mean, <laughs> you know, and I think that, that that level of naivety is also required. I mean, you know, I don't know where we're always going to be. You know, yeah. I remember hearing that thing of like, oh, you need a business plan. I'm like, why? Like, <laughs> how do you know? Like, you're growing with the business and you're, you know, as long as you feel like you're growing and, um, you know, you're taking care of your team and, you, you know, you're caring for your people and you're having an impact and you're doing all the things um, and you're having a happy life. Like I think that, you know, are you happy with what you're doing? Like, yes, keep doing more of that, lean in really hard. No, do something else, you know. I think that, um, uh, you know, we've all got these choices that we've got to make and I think, you know, your happiness, the team's happiness always has to come first. Um, and are you doing work that you're passionate about? And um, I think that that's, that's really the core of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, on public work and that sort of step, I mean, was there ever a point where you felt with Wawa, maybe you and Scott and the team felt that are we going to, okay, you said you didn't have a plan, but I'm going to ask you, was it there at any point, was there a plan to go, Public's the way we're heading at some point in time, like larger civic com community projects. Was that how early on did you, was that always there or was there ever a point where you were considering, hey, we're carving out like a pretty cool niche for ourselves in residential. Do we just sort of stick here or what was some of the, what was that, what was that decision making like behind the scenes? I mean, I think we always wanted to do both. I think we were getting uh, traction with the res and we thought, hey, let's just build up this one thing first, um, you know, while we kind of quietly cook the civic stuff on the side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, so we started the footy club in 2015. 
So, yeah, I think we knew that it was going to be this long burn strategy. So we thought we'll just cook up the, um, we'll just, you know, get some, get some renos under our belt and then, and just kind of see and like allow things to kind of um, evolve. Like the only, um, you know, speaking of competitions, the only comp that we did was for Melbourne Uni Underground Car Park. Yeah. And um, where we won that one. So we've actually only done one comp and we've won. <laughs> You're one so for we, one. Okay. Yeah. Great. We have a hundred percent success yeah. rate. So, yeah. um, but I think, yeah, th- we did always have an ambition to sort of, you know, stretch um, or flex other muscles, but figuring out how to actually get there was a bit opaque to me at the time. And so I could never have projected that in a business plan because I, I literally had no idea. I think, yeah. you know, I'm really one for allowing things to just flow and, develop in a way that feels right yeah and so you just kind of let it unfold naturally but you knew you were kind of heading in that direction and i think it was just like a hard hustle as well though so i think you know you can't really hustle for um you know resi projects in a way you can't like knock on people's doors and be like hey your house looks shit like can i please (laughs) renovate it like you know whereas um i think it was about kind of going okay well we've done footy club or we, you know, we were doing that, um, you know, we really love like community sporting things, um, yeah. you know, and then there was the Victorian School Building Authority sort of happened at the same time. So um, the VSBA is their acronym, started um, inviting younger emerging architects to, to into the fold. And so we, um, you know, went to a bunch of their information sessions and uh, one of the key guys there was saying that he was looking for some people, you know, to, to put in some like people with their hair on fire and uh, Scott went up and he's like, my hair's on fire. And, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, we made friends with a lot of people and we were keen to, yeah, get into that educational space because I think we just liked designing for, you know, there, there was some nice sort of crossover between designing for families and then designing, you know, for, for kids in a school and or for, for community um you know, facilities for, you know, for netballers and footballers. And, yeah. um, you know, I think that there's sort of a nice, um, you know, there's a nice link in there. I mean, Nightingale was also part of that. Um, mm. That got thrown in the mix. Um, we're only just now starting to do more multi-res. Um, yeah. I think we it took a while for us to get over our Nightingale site being sold, um, <laughs> you know, because I think that that did speak a lot to our values and we were really excited about, you know, the impact yeah. that that was going to have. But, um yeah. Yeah, hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm, my fingers are always crossed that the next Nightingale is going to be a Wawa Nightingale. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So that's interesting The with the, I'm not going to do the acronym, but the Victorian school thing, the board, mm. um, they, they, they almost had like, I wasn't aware of this, but did they have kind of an initiative to sort of support like some, you mentioned these kind of emerging practices. So were you yeah. finding that um, there was quite a, you know, you, the system was quite welcoming and quite, you know, um, yeah, we, you found that it was like a good environment and a good system to be coming into at that time? In the past, most of the school projects had been done by just like a handful of, you know, quite old architects. And I think that, yeah, there, there was a new sort of um, CEO in town and he wanted to bring in some some fresh blood and um, being part of that was really amazing. I mean, you've got such a huge uh, range now. I think that, you know, I can imagine the book that will be put out in the next 10 years that will just have, um, you know, Kennedy Nolan, Kozlov, you know, BKK, mm. um, us, sibling, yeah. um, architecture, you know, like all the, you know, all the fun, like emerging, yeah. um, well, you know, largely emerge some of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Yeah. But, you know, it's going to be this, re- you know, this really good body of work that was able to be done in that school space. And I, I'm really excited by that because there's been a lot of opportunities. You know, their fees are really big um, and it's sort of allowed us to um, to do a lot of things and be much more flexible. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty great. I wonder if it's like Melbourne obviously is done that but i wonder i i always get the feeling like that's something that maybe other practices in other cities if they're finding that that they're still just picking the old architects right that have been doing the schools and stuff forever that do you think there's room to kind of like push for and advance that uh it's important to kind of advance that idea of like engaging the younger the emerging practices i guess there's always this idea with when it comes to public it's like if we're a small practice, if we're a relatively new practice, like can we be trusted <laughs> with with like these larger projects? But what what are your like? I'm, I'm guessing your answer is yes, we can, right? <laughs> yeah, in Sydney they have um, a requirement, or not a requirement. In Sydney they have a uh, initiative where you can get um, additional levels on your building, or you know, um, in in the multi-res space, if you include a emerging architect on your team. Um, and so I think that that um, it was it sort of happened around the same time as these multi-generational teams of architects were being put together that we see now. It was kind of almost the creation of that um, in time. And um, I think that that will become um, true in Melbourne as well. I think that there's new sort of um, design initiatives that are happening within, say, the city of Melbourne um, that will kind of allow for um, more opportunities for emerging architects. And I think that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I'm on Chapter Council to kind of push that agenda for people because they sort of keep it industry in, in, interesting because, yeah, an emerging practice can't, literally just can't get um, the experience that they need if they've never done it before. And I just don't think it should be that hard because a lot of emerging practices are the people, you know, are the people that were in these larger firms yeah, um, exactly. that were doing these projects. <laughs> they're extremely capable. And yes. um, then they've gone out on their own again because they're extremely capable. And so they shouldn't be penalized in that way, I think. And, it, you know, it really was the status quo being upheld by those, you know, key handful of um, architects. Uh, whereas now we're sort of saying, hey, um, you know, you're a bit stale, so get us <laughs> in and we can, you can be the experience, we'll be the fresh and we'll put it yeah. together. And um, I think that there's really nice opportunities for everyone in that, in that scale, um, you yeah. know, large, medium and small practices. So it's exciting. So is that something that you guys have done in terms of partnering up with like more maybe like established practices or is that just saying that other emerging, it's, you're seeing that in the market or is that something that you've actually done yourself? Have you done those sorts of partnerships? We've actually done those a few times um, for big competitions and I realised yeah. I just totally lied because we did do some competitions <laughs> but we didn't win them and yeah. I just am like... You forgot totally, about them. You I totally buried, yeah, you buried I, that memory, okay, about <laughs> 40 grand or whatever investment. Exactly. Oh, my God, all that heartache. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we've, we haven't won, so, um, but we have yeah. done these multi-generational sort of teams um, which... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we haven't, we, you know, there's one, there was one out for the NGV competition and we decided not to go with it just because um, we just had so much work from the VSBA on and yeah. um, I just had a baby and it just yeah. felt like maybe it was the wrong time. So I think you've just got to be selective in the work that you do and if it's always about the intention and the purpose and um, being deliberate about what it is that you're doing, then, um, yeah, go for it. When you do have those multi-generational competitions, I'm, I'm just in like curiosity mode right now because I don't know anything about c- competitions and like light, the stuff that the much larger practice t- tend to get into a little bit more. But 
that multi-generational thing, um, is that something where you get in like hustle mode, meet people mode, and you're like, I'm going to go make friends with architects and we're going to eventually do something together and like collab? Or is it like uh, at some point we're going to put like our, our, our name in a hat and someone's going to pick out you go with you? Like is that <laughs> how does it kind of how does it work in practice to have those multi-generational partnerships in these competitions? I mean, people. I think it's both. Some people approach us. Um, so we normally get invited, at, you know, at least one or two invites um, to the yeah. co- for the various competitions. Um, but I think it's more, you know, the lead architect will put together a team, and mm. so it'll be around, you know, what do what do we what can we actually bring to a team? Like mm. if it's always about service, then it's like, okay, well, where our B Corp certification is a big tick for us, um, or, or a big tick for the lead architects that are putting together these teams. So. Um, we can sort of say, hey, we're emerging, we're female-led, we're B Corp certified, you know, we sort of almost like make yep. the whole team B Corp certified or something. <laughs> like, um, you know, we're super ethical, we're purpose-driven, you know, we're, um, you know, we're, I'm currently setting up a non-for-profit. Like, you know, yep. there's there's sort of um, reasons that you would choose sort of, um, you know, and, and it's also, I guess, a point of difference. So if the architect is in the lead who has got a more minimal sort of visual language, they might... Um, you know, have us as the pocket rocket, like, you yeah, know, yeah, totally. to the side. Um, and so I guess, uh, I mean, that's one of the good things about Melbourne, that everyone has a very dis- distinctive visual language. And so when you put people together, you get really interesting outcomes. And I think that's yeah. um, that's the interest of the multi-generational thing. And an architect was telling me the other day, like another medium-sized practice that his theory was that like because the the, the frameworks or the submission processes for some of these projects are so they demand so much of a practice or they so can be so complicated that sometimes that's why you need that partnership because you just as one individual practice you might just not have all those things like that B Corp certification that that social conscience track record like all that sort of stuff that that partnership is almost filling those gaps that you don't have in a really nice way. Um, but his question, which I'll put to you, which is like, th- there's a sense that you're either going to end up on the really sort of the the production workhorse side or the pocket rocket creative side. And, I, and he was like, my fear is that we're going to end up on that production side when we want to be on that creative side. And I guess like if somebody's kind of in that position, I mean, what are some things that you could, I know it's kind of a strange question, but what are some things that you can maybe focus on just to make sure that you end up in that sought after creative, cool, small, but dangerous side of that relationship. And you don't end up as your practice grows kind of falling into the other camp of being the one that has to find the interesting practice to partner with. And not that that's it, not that woe was in any danger of that, but what do you think are some of the ingredients? You talked about like B Corp and, and, and things like that, but is there anything else that you think is an important part of that dynamic and that point of difference for woe I feel like I'm just repeating myself now, but I just, <laughs> I just feel as though like who are you authentically, I would say. You know, like one of my favourite expressions is the fish rots from the head. And so <laughs> it's... You know, because then um, it sort of says that it's my responsibility. Like anything that's wrong with the practice is my responsibility. Any culture that I feel like isn't part of it, you know, if there's if people are having a you know a bad time at the studio or you know or um you know in work, like what can I do? I can send them snacks. I can you know <laughs> send them you know cocktails. Like I I always take this personal responsibility of anything going right or wrong. 
um, within the business because then it means I have the agency to change it. So if, if someone's having a hard time um, or they're just not performing at their best, what can I personally do to help them thrive? Like, it, you know, I think, um, and that goes to, you know, if you're starting to be pigeonholed as a practice, well, I think you just need to look inwards, like to yourself and be like the decisions that you are making are, are you know, are facilitating or the, yeah, the, the, the steps that you're taking are actually facilitating um, your, the practice growth in a specific way. And that's on you, mate. <laughs> like, um, I guess I, I would, I just reinforce that over and over. So someone that, you know, a large, a large practice or a, a practice that just pops up, um, out of nowhere. And then suddenly they're like, we need a culture committee because they have none. It's like, well, yeah. then you have no culture. Like, um, yeah. when, when I say office culture, I mean like, um, what are you as the director, what are you doing to make everyone else's life? Like what service, um, are you providing to your team? Like there's sort of the service that you provide to your clients, but you know, who are you as a leader? Who are you as a manager? Who are you, um, as a visionary? And I think that all of those questions um, come are relevant when someone's kind of feeling as though their practice is moving in a direction that they, they didn't imagine. It's like, well, what are you doing, mate? <laughs> yeah. How does your, I feel like that's such a great answer and such a great thing to think about, but I guess like m- maybe to break, break it down and make it a bit more simple, like how do you think that thinking about yourself as that leader and your culture and who you are and what you're doing and stuff like how, how does that have a ripple effect? Like what it, obviously it changes, you know, you, you touched on the impact that it has on the people that work for you and things like that. But how does it, how did, how does that get seen by the outside? What, like, how does it work? <laughs> I guess like what, what, why did, why do you think that that's effective? I, I know that it is, but like what, what's the mechanism that, makes that when you start doing that process and that developing that awareness and thinking about your own actions, like why does that start to ripple out into the world? I just would love your thoughts on I think on it's that. because it in it impacts every single decision that you and your team make, right? Like if there's this beautiful unison because everyone that works, you know, with you, everyone works, um, you know, for under the Wawa umbrella, um, you know, it's, it's the small decision of what should the balustrade be? You know, the balustrade should be, fun. It should be, um, made out of sustainable materials. Um, it should be locally sourced. It should be colorful, right? So there's these metrics that we have from a design perspective that are already embedded within, um, the practice as opposed to, um, you know, having, uh, you know, because it's very practice value. It's a value-based practice. Whereas if you're working, um, in a larger organization and your only metric is, um, value for the client and um, cost and, um, you know, things like that, then actually the decisions are so much harder. And so I think that that's why we seem really tight as a brand because everything is always reinforcing each other. Like what should mm. this, you know, we always have beers at 420 because we were at 420 right down street. Like, you know, <laughs> that's why, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, like it's, yeah. yeah, exactly. We don't, we, and it's called blaze, like in the diary of everyone, you know, like, oh, okay. I think it's just, <laughs> is there an explicit, um, tick on this no. podcast? No. But, um, you know, I think that it's kind of like, how do you reinforce, like when people were having a, um, you know, a hard time and we were saying, okay, instead of taking a Mexican, uh, instead of taking a mental health day, right. Which sort of sounds kind of a bit grim, um, you know, we would say take a Mexico day. Cause we always have this joke that when we win this, when we win this massive 
job, we're all going to go to Mexico and it's just going to be the best. And so you can see in, in our flex calendar from everyone has uh, Mexico Day, you know, in the diary. And so everyone knows, okay, they're in Mexico, like don't, don't bother them that day. I don't know. Like I yeah. think it's just always like wrapping everything in um, the brand of, of who you are and what you want and fun and, um, and, you know, really thinking about the, 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 the pillars of your business and that if you have your house in order, then you can design other people's houses, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and that's what B Corp does. It had a lot of, you know, policies and procedures and, um, you know, uh, promises that we are legally required to now um, be accountable for, like, um, you know, contributions to charity, contributions to um, work that, uh, volunteering work that the team can do, you know, training, um, all the things. Like B Corp really does um, plant it again, like plant that flag in the sand and say this is these are our values and um, we adhere to a global standard of those and, um, yeah. Yeah. You're chomping at the bit to talk about B Corp. So I'm definitely going <laughs> to, we're going to go there. <laughs> I um, feel like I just but, did, right? Yeah, no, no. So you've already done it. Um, I, I I think that's interesting. And that comes up for me from time to time where where maybe an architect will be like, I'm very, I'm very like, I have strong beliefs. I'm very passionate about something in particular. And I'm considering, you know, getting certified in that area, whatever that is, like whether it's to do with sustainability or to do with something, right? Um and you've gone through the B Corp process and 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 come out the other side of that, and it's now something that's highlighted very strongly, like on your website. I imagine in like the way that you communicate when you're trying to get a potential project and stuff like that. Um, like, has that been super? I mean, you already touched on it, but has that been super helpful for you? I guess in so many ways, like going through that process and 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 doing doing that. Like, what what has that kind of meant? for you it, it helps you obviously to make conscious decisions and improve these things but in what what are some of the other ways that it's been helpful for you to go through that process well moving from a resi firm to one that did civic work i think it was very much around the collateral of uh documents that we needed to prove to councils that we were um you know our social procurement um you know that we were we we, we had these ohs forms and we had the environmental strategy and we had um, all of the things. So really it was uh, an adolescence for our practice to be able to kind of um, start documenting. So we're now almost um, ISO 9000 certified, which is the next kind of heavy hitter tick box um, certification for architecture or for, for businesses um, mm. to sort of say that we have a quality assurance process and we have all of these various procedures of minutes and checking and you know, but I guess wow. even this thing, right, of like we needed a stamp to um, say that we've checked, someone had checked the drawings. Um, and so it's like, okay, it should be a tramp stamp. And then I was like, okay, the tramp stamp that I was thinking of was like a Southern Cross. So I made this stamp that was, a, you know, that you had yeah. to tick the box in all the different yeah. stars. And it's like, yes, I've scanned it. Yes, I've uh, put the date in. And yeah. I don't know, like, I think it's just like what, like every single moment is an opportunity to kind of reinforce your values. Um, and so, you know, even say with B Corp, like they would, they would say, who do you rent from? Who do you get your, um, you know, where do you take your electronics? Where do you recycle your soft plastics? Where do you do, I don't know, just all the things, um, and, and seeing every single moment, um, that you engage in the world as a, 
as an opportunity to be meaningful. And so I think it's really important for people to kind of choose a direction and that that does become um, marketing collateral, but it really yeah. does help reinforce for your team like who you are and, and their goals and, you know, that your team do have their own ambitions and they have their own set of um, desires. And so it's I see it as my job for Wawa to always be evolving to keep it interesting for the team. Yeah. Because otherwise they'll just leave and they're too good to leave so um, or too good to be poached. So I just want to keep them and, you know, yeah, I, I feel like I spend probably at least minimum 20% of my time worrying about the team and, yeah. you know, making sure they're okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, and it kind of goes back to that question about, you know, on paper maybe sticking to that original just staying in residential would have been, like business coach would probably say like that's a prudent decision in some ways, right? Because you're specializing and having a niche and whatever. But but you're also aware of you're, you want to create these new challenges for your team as well, right? So you don't just want to get too repetitive and in a rut, right? Like going out and exploring new things is a way to hold on to people for a long time. And you've, you've got some employees that have been with you for ages right <laughs> like yeah. a very sticky group of people which is really good um yeah. as you as you went from residential into public like this is a kind of a concern that kind of comes up um uh from time to time um which is you know do we start to like lose traction that we'd gained with those initial residential clients like when they see that we're doing these other things and we're working on like these huge projects and like reshaping Melbourne and engaging with communities and stuff. Is there ever a, uh, was there ever a fear or a doubt in your mind of like from the residential client's perspective, are they going to be like, Oh no, whoa, whoa, don't, whoa, I don't love our house anymore. <laughs> like that was, was that no, ever no like? No way, no way. Yeah. Like one of our biggest projects at the minute that we're almost completing um, she, you know, she is a social entrepreneur. She's a philanthropist. She came to us because we were B Corp certified. So, wow. you know, you can sort of see that actually the, um, yeah, that the big moves influence the small moves and then the residential sort of DNA really does translate to the civic work that we do. So I think, again, it's sort of this nice, you know, the moment that it proves yeah. that you did the thing and it was for a reason. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like there've been you know throughout this interview we've spoken about these like nice little sort of proof moments. That's that's because um, I'm the interviewer, right? Like I'm just <laughs> I'm just killing it. You're um, amazing. You're I love you, you Dave. Um, thank you. So so that's like that that is like the really interesting thing. The client has evolved. It reminds me of like bands that you know have been successful for a really long time, and like their audience grows up, and like now they they have kids. Like not that we're talking about that much of an age gap, but like you know initially they were little renovations to old houses in Brunswick kind of thing. And it was like these young successful women who like finding you on Instagram. And now those same women are like on the boards of directors of like socially conscious organizations and philanthropy. And like they're now this executive successful level and they're coming to you for houses, but like in a completely like in a bit of a different way, but like they still kind of reflect almost how your sort of, life has changed and what your interests are have changed as well. So that's, that's interesting. So there's actually a really beneficial connection between the public work that you're doing and the residential. They're not these two like disjointed things. They, one actually helps to support the other as well or can in some cases. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm pretty multi-passionate as well. And so I kind of, you know, was wondering at one point, do I split off what I'm doing personally from, 
you know, Wawoa. But then I kind of realized that actually the strength was that Wawoa was just all the things and that that was okay because, um, you know, because, because it's, because that's just what I want to do. Like I want to do a conference and I want to not write a novel, but maybe a book. Um, yeah. you know, I joke that it's whoa, 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 wet areas. <laughs> That's our <laughs> hashtag on Instagram, like for kitchens, bathrooms and yeah. laundries. Um, <laughs> it won't be that. Although, I, it, <laughs> although maybe it will, but, um, I don't know. I think it's, I think, you know, it's fun to be experimental. It's fun to try things. I mean, we, yeah, we just launched a podcast. You were yeah. our very first guest with Nick Bronson. It's called yeah. Gert. Um, yep. you know, that's just the next Stop thing. Plugging your podcast, trying to <laughs> trying to poach my subscribers. Get out of here with that. But I am on the first episode, so I feel like that's okay. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because exactly. yeah, so, we didn't neither of us knew how to do a podcast. So we were like, let's get Dave on to tell us in the podcast how to do a podcast. Oh, so so postmodern. I love it. Um, so meta. Love yeah, it. Yeah. So so yeah, so initiatives like that and that so you ended up deciding that the personal brand doesn't have to become its own sort of split off thing that it does support the main brand. Like it's kind of weird calling it a personal brand, but this is kind of like Monique's activities that don't always directly involve talking about the projects that the studio is working on. Right. So, so you go off and you engage with these other things and you talk about other topics and have an impact in all these different areas and the conference and talks and interviews and panels. And it's, like you're very busy with that stuff, right? <laughs> Still, there's a lot True. there. I feel like every time we speak, you're like, I just, I had a panel this morning for this. So like, it's all, you've always got a pretty like packed schedule of doing those sorts of things. Um, yeah. It would be interesting to touch on that briefly because I think that's another thing that kind of comes up um, or I get questions about fairly often, which is somebody who, an architect, they maybe are at the drawing board. They are at that sort of more introverted stage, but they do sort of think, you know, I would like to maybe give a talk or be on a panel or be invited to speak somewhere. And once you're, I, I get a sense that once you've got some momentum going with that, that you've done that a few times, it starts to, you know, you've, you've already made it clear. It starts to lead one thing to the next. And, you know, someone who's at one thing will ask you to speak at another thing. And so I get that, but, you know, where would you kind of begin in terms of forming that initial idea or, um, or get or try to find those opportunities. I mean, do you have any like any any advice on how to go from like zero to one in terms of like personal like public speaking, writing, like that sort of thing? I think it goes back to what I said before about mentors, right? Like you know, if someone has articulated that they want to speak or they want to do a podcast or whatever, I think that you need to find people who are doing that work already, and instead of being like Ugh, jealous of them, right? Like yeah. go and embrace them and be like, how can I be of service to you? You know, I, I do get quite a few emails from people saying, um, hey, can I meet you for a coffee? And I'm just like, I am so busy right now. Like yeah. I am just, I've got, I'm yeah. just come back from maternity leave. I'm running two businesses now. I, you yeah. know, like, I mean, how like, what are you offering me? Like, yeah. you know, cause it's generally a zoom now because you can't even meet for coffee. But, yeah. um, so I think, you know, when I always approach people, it would always be like, Hey, I've got this thing for you. Like here, like your life will be better with me in it. And yeah. this is the reason why rather than, Hey, can I have something from you? I think that it's a very different kind of, um, way to approach someone. Like, Hey, I have this gift. Like, 
hey, can I help you? I mean, essentially that's how you and I became friends, right? Like you said to me that those If You Were Mine videos were just lagging. We're just, you know, (laughs) like sitting there, like getting dust on them and you were like, hey, let's fix it. So, um, you know, and now we're like best friends. And um, I don't know, like I think that I'd approach people in that way um, with, with, of service um, and and what impact can you have on their life? That's a really good answer because so I feel that sometimes uh, it's great that also that you touch on that that sort of jelly, jealous or envious kind of emotion, which is that trigger of like you want to sort of be like that person or do what they're doing to a degree. Some architects have a bad habit of turning that into like, oh, I, I hate that architect. Like they start all that. Like they <laughs> yeah, turn so it unuseful. In, like so like they turn it into this kind of like bitter, you know, spiteful, like, oh, screw that person kind of vibe mm. rather than going like, oh, maybe maybe I could potentially like reach out, build a relationship yeah, with that Maybe person. I need counseling to <laughs> heal my inner child because I clearly don't have the emotional intelligence to exactly. Like, yeah, there's a little expensive. bit of there's a there's a little bit of that too, or a big bit of that sometimes. But yeah. um, but no, that's a really interesting thing. So you'd reach out and, and then and then um, you know, with something to offer. And I guess like, I, I guess like there's that idea also of like, I guess the what is the exercise of somebody reflecting on the things that are, you know, that that they could the tap into that like passion or that that want to have an impact in a particular area or an issue or, or, or whatever. I mean, I know it just comes very naturally to you, but like, so I feel like some people aren't quite aware or they have trouble kind of getting in touch with what is that thing that I'm going to put out there or, or do you kind of get what I'm saying? Like, is there, yeah, I think you, you should find start yourself with, in that. Yeah. You go should ahead. start with, you know, how can I, um, how can I contribute should be the question I think that you should start with because, um, you know, what skills do I have and what can I contribute to the world? I mean, the world's a huge place, right? So how can I contribute to make someone else's life better? You know, I have all these skills. What am I going to do with them? Like, um, you know, what are you interested in? Like, what are your hobbies? Like, I think that it really does start with this intense investigation um, and unpacking of who you are as a person and what are you interested in? Are you, what did you, maybe a question is what did you do in, in ISO? What did you do in, in lockdown, right? Like, did you start baking bread? Did you develop some other hobby? Like, did, you know, I started up for non-for-profit. Like, um, I was like, yeah, maybe I'll learn to cook. And, um, anyway, I've cooked like two things. So that's, <laughs> you know, that's just not, I'm just going to be like, you know what, yeah. Scott can cook from now on. Sorry. Sorry, babe. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's like what is it that you did when you had the time or, um, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, we always hire people that, um, you know, have multiple things going on. Like that's one of my key um, decision makers of, you know, who should be joining the team. Like did they do a degree before architecture? Like most of them did. You know, Scott did um, fine arts before architecture. I'm like the only one that didn't, basically. Yeah. I just like ran straight <laughs> yeah, through. Yeah, straight through architecture, yep. Yeah. yeah, but, um, you know, it's kind of like we want um, we, we to acknowledge that life is complex and that we, that you know, and so say if an architect's like, well, I don't have any hobbies and all I do is architecture, 
I don't really know. I don't, I'm out of ideas, yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and getting into that sort of burnt out stage where it's like just just architecture, just that. But I think it's interesting to people that you can actually start to think about the not just not just the work you're doing, obviously. It doesn't have okay, to can I give you an example I just thought of? So, yeah, so a friend of mine just said, hey, I want to start uh, an Instagram account and I want it to be, you know, I want to grow, I want to grow some momentum. And, you know, he was just sort of taking photos of, you know, stuff that he would see around. And I would always think like everyone does that. Everyone takes a photo of a chimney and, you know, some like nice junction that's sort of aged or something in the urban environment, Um, you know, and I'm like, what makes you different? Like you should start an Instagram, um, you know, because it's so hard to get cut through now if you're sort of starting from scratch. Like you should start with something that you're really, really good at. And so he, he was really good at sketching. So I'm like, mate, just, just smash your sketches like on there because people, they're beautiful. And that's what, um, is actually going to get some cut through because no one's interested in a picture of a chimney. Like it's just so boring. Um, and, and just done like a million times. I feel like Nigel Bertram, like, started that back in the day and you know and he and he he went all in on that like he's made you know all of his books and research and um teaching and his practice it's so um authentically them right like and so i think that it's about finding something that you're you're interested in that's different and it goes back to those three you know if you were the mixture of three people right so it's like you are deciding to put these three people together and so um, like who, who is it? Like, is it a bit of someone who's really good at business? Is it a bit of someone who's really good at writing? Is it a bit of some, is it an artist actually? Yeah. And so by you authentically going, okay, well, this feels right to me because you are the one that's putting the list together. Yeah. So then you can be like, okay, well, I'm going to do more of the, I'm going to do more of these like collaborations with artists and I'm going to do more of this X, Y, Z. Right. Yeah. And so just being a bit more, um, deliberate about what it is that we're doing, I think, um, in that, in, you know, in that um, space. I think that's needed. Mon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I've just, yeah, I've said my most profound thing and now it's an hour out. We have to cut it there. Thank you so much. It was really (laughs) lovely having you on and and talking the broad philosophy of Monique Woodward and Woi Woi love I love hearing about it. Um, and we'll have to do another episode soon to catch up on all the new things you're working on. We just explored like 2014 to 2016, so we'll have to do another episode for the last five years, but thank you very much. Thanks, Dave. Well, that was my conversation with Monique Woodward from Wawawa. If you'd like to learn more about Wawawa, you can visit wawawa.com.au, so w-o-w-o-w-a.com.au, or follow the practice on Instagram at wawawaarch, A-R-C-H. You can also follow Monique on Instagram at monique underscore underscore woodward. By the time you're listening to this episode, Monique will have also released the first episode of Gert, her new podcast with Nick Brunson, who's also been on this podcast. 
I was the first guest on their new show, so go and look for Gert on your podcast app or subscribe for email updates on the contact page at wowowa.com.au. If this is your first time listening to my podcast, please make sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every second week. It also helps other architects to find the show and benefit from these conversations when you subscribe. So, I really appreciate you looking us up in your favorite podcast app. And finally, if you'd like to learn more about me, Dave Sharp, you can visit vanityprojects.com to check out my blog, join over 5,000 other architects on my email list, or learn more about my marketing coaching for architects and book a 15-minute call to discuss your situation. That's all for this week and I'll see you next time.